There's definitely a dark side to AI. AI is a dual-edged sword. How do we unlock its potential? What do we do when technology becomes lethal? Brian David Johnson is a writer, threatcaster, and currently professor of practice at Arizona State University's School for the Future of Innovation in Society. Having based his career on his ability to accurately assess and identify potential future threats and events, Johnson has gotten to work with some of the largest organizations in the world. Using some of the same techniques used in his work with governments and militaries to trade organizations and startups, Johnson helps readers plan their own personal futures in one of his most recent books, The Future You. Brian David Johnson, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. It is a pleasure to be here. And today I'm going to read to you from the opening of one of my more recent books called The Future You. And this is chapter one, Finding the Future You, or Why a Futurist Decided to Write a Self-Help Book. No one wakes up one morning and thinks, I need a futurist. I get called in when dark clouds are forming on the horizon and a company or an organization needs help figuring out what their next moves might be. If you're reading this book or listening to me, I hope your situation isn't too dire, but you obviously need some advice about your future, maybe as it relates to your job or financial security or anxieties around technology, politics, the economy, or the world. Maybe you're worried about how your relationships will play out with your kids or your partners. There are these big future fears, things about pandemics, war, sickness, and of course, the mother of them all, I can help. I can't tell you your future, but I can show you how I've helped many people realize theirs, including the specific steps they need to take to move toward the future they want, or at least a little better about where they're headed, a little more in control. Taking the first step is the hardest part, but trust me when I say you can do it. I'm not saying that it will be easy, but I am saying you can do it. Being worried about the future is just that, it's worrying. Think about how much time and energy you spend worrying about stuff that hasn't happened and maybe even never will. But what if you instead put all of your energy towards the creation of a positive and lasting future? I get it. Even after working as a futurist for a very long time, I still get worried sometimes. The reason why I wrote this book was the idea to say that we all have the power to shape our future, that we have the power to shape our futures, our family, our communities, the organizations that we're in. Then there's also things we don't have power to shape and understanding what that might look like. That was the whole idea behind The Future You, is how to give people the ability to help shape and think about their own futures. The idea of talking about a future you, there's all these other kind of questions. What are humans going to be like in the future? Transhumanism, neuro-wetware, it opens up these other possibilities. And I know that you're all about possibilities and possible futures. I think it's very useful to go back even to some of those essential questions, because we're thinking a lot about AI and these things. So how do you define your sense of self? Who is Brian David Johnson? your perception, how do you know you're conscious? How do I know that I am conscious? That's a very philosophical question. I think how I define myself is certainly by the effect that I have on the world around me. I am a futurist. I work with organizations to think about possible and probable futures, both positive and negative. When that way, I'm always trying to have impact. I kind of measure myself on the impact that I can have. I'm an applied futurist, which means I don't just think about the capital F future. I really do work with people, whether it be individuals or organizations or governments or military. I'm really trying to enable people to take action. I don't make predictions. I'm not predicting the future. My job and how I've defined success over the last 25 years of doing this is to say, am I helping people get prepared for the future? Am I helping people to be able to make decisions, take actions, and really feel empowered? That's, I think, the biggest thing 
while writing a self-help book and helping people, it was an experience in terror because I don't know. I don't know other people's futures, but I can help them. I know that I am in the world by my impact and whether that be by the work that I do or the books that I write or being a professor at Arizona State University, what I always tell my students is how can I help? Ultimately, I don't know more than them. Statistically, they are probably more intelligent or smarter than I am. What I have is experience and I've got some gray in my beard and can teach them some things and show them some things and, and walk them through. But ultimately it's again, how can I help? How can I have impact? Experience counts for a lot. Speed of cognition isn't everything. I think what's on a lot of our minds around AI, it has the speed, it has the capacity building, but sometimes that judgment and slowness is an asset that we need. How do we scale back? How do we slow down? How do we make sure that we're building, as you say, the futures that we want, not just for the sake of building building and the novelty factor, but ensuring that there's a place for the future you, that your jobs aren't taken over and automated and robotics doesn't make us unnecessary. We could talk the entire, all the rest of it, just what you said. Yes. Let's talk about that. I love all of that. Yes. Well, since your book came out in 2020, obviously things have been accelerating on the front of AI and all the new technologies. Give us a sense of your perspective on how you see the concept of the future self-evolving through our increasingly digital and interconnected world. So the book is actually published in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. In it, I write about pandemics. I wasn't predicting it at all, but my publisher, when we were all on lockdown, called me and said, dude, you wrote a book about the pandemic before the pandemic. You really are a futurist. I was like, no, no, no. I was writing about existential threats like war and famine and climate change. Let's completely talk about technology and the role of humanity and of being human and what it means to be present in that. We need to keep humans at the center of everything that we do, that everything that we do in our life is about humans. It begins with humans and it ends with humans going back to impact, right? There might be technologies and businesses and all these things in between, but we should measure by the effect on humans. I'm a technological futurist, right? I'm an engineer and a designer. I've worked in Silicon Valley for many years. So much of the work that I do was about technology. What people would say about me is that I was a funny little futurist because I cared more about people than I did about technology, which is true. Because when I talk to people about artificial intelligence or technology, I'm generally asking them two questions. What are you optimizing for? What's the effect that you're trying to get? Developing technology for technology's sake is why you're doing it because you think it's interesting. But then if you're doing it beyond your own gratification, why? When I work on robots, when I work on AI, that's kind of what we're looking at, making sure we keep humans at the center, because if we don't, that's very bad for us. That doesn't turn out well for anybody. It's a very, very bad thing. A lot of the work that I do in my threat casting lab is that I'm looking at possible potential threats out in the future. So much of what I do in that is talking to governments and militaries and large organizations say we always have to keep humans in the center because it's about us. That really is incredibly important. And that's one of the central ideas in the future you is to say, to your point, the future should be about humans and where are humans going? And what do we want as humans and how are we using technology to make us more human or healthier or happier or more productive or you name it. I think Oftentimes what will happen as a trap is when we talk about technology, people say, well, what, what do you think is the future of artificial intelligence? Or what is the future of neural interfaces? Or what is the future of this? I always pause them and say, wait a minute, you're having the wrong conversation because it's not about the technology. So when people talk, what's the future of AI? I said, I don't know. What do we want the future of AI to be? I think that that's a shift that it sounds quite subtle to some people, but it's really important because if you look at any piece of news or anything like that, they talk about AI as if it was a thing that was fully formed that sprang out of the earth and is now walking around doing things. And what will AI do in the future? And how will it affect our jobs? It's not AI that's doing it. These are people, these are companies, these are organizations that are doing it. 
And that's where we need to keep our focus is what are those organizations doing? And also, what do we want from it as humans? Exactly. We're still supposedly steering the ship, although sometimes you hear about things acting autonomously. I want to go into the military aspect and there's all kinds of threats. But it's so strange because as humans, generally, we might act against our interests, but we usually act in our own self-interest. We consume so many of the resources of our planet. Usually, we're pretty good at focusing on ourselves immorally even, but we focus on us. We don't think about animals. We don't think about the natural world. Generally, that's our behavior. But when it comes to the AI and new technologies, we're distracted. Oh, it's like it's a new toy. And as you say, it's a wrong way to think about it. Interestingly, a European regulator this week sent a letter to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg urging the billionaire to be vigilant. It's been very fascinating to see how that's been playing out very rapidly about removing disinformation. A same letter sent to Elon Musk. And now we've seen this disinformation starting to come off those platforms. And after all those years of testifying Congress and the slowness of that, we saw that Zuckerberg didn't even seem to know what was going on in his own company. And suddenly those things can start coming down when threatened, when we are thinking in our own self-interest. We can move quickly. We can pull the plug. So that's a good thing to know. We can also make decisions, much like you said, so I'm glad you brought that up. I think a really interesting decision here in the United States is something that just happened in the last couple of weeks is we had the writer's strike. The writer's union in Hollywood went on strike and it was very big news here. And one of the things that they wrote into their contract was that the studios, the businesses of entertainment were not allowed to use AI to do their jobs. It was written into the contract and agreed upon. That's not AI doing anything. AI could still write a script. They're not very good. But now we as humans, that collective bargaining agreement went through and said, you're not allowed to do that. Now, you still technically could do it, but they're not allowed to, right? And so that I think is where you can begin to see it's not just government regulation, which is very important, but businesses and collective agreements regulating themselves. What I'm really excited about, and I think you touched on it, is when I write about threats and I write about things that we know are threats coming in the future, whether it be for the military or for business or things like you can kind of think about it as these concentric circles. You're at the very center, you have laws and laws are very specific. You can do this, you can't do this, whatever. And as you go a little bit further out, you have regulations, which are a little bit more gray. And then as you go out a little bit further, you have standards. And we use standards a lot in technology and what is okay. And then as you move a little bit further out, you have norms. And norms, I think, are incredibly powerful. I think as you start to watch it happen, it moves a little bit further out. It moves between those circles. But norms are really interesting because we have norms. And different countries have different norms. It's a great example of what it means where there's just things you do and things you don't do. There's no law against it. It's just what is right. I'm not a social scientist, but I work with social scientists and the production of norms and how they get out there. It's not a law. It's what's okay and not okay. And then the furthest one out is culture. And culture is what we're all floating in. Culture is a very interesting thing, but you can start to look at where the points of power happen and how you can change that. It was really interesting to see this writer's strike for them to go, no, what we do in this business, you will not use AI to do. And you had all parties agree to it. And if they now do it, they are in breach of contract. And that's, I think, a really good, very specific example of how we, like you said, keep our eyes on what the humans want. It doesn't matter what the technology wants because you can't do it. Even though you could 
technically have them write a script in Hollywood with these people. You're not allowed to do it. And it's true that we can actually do a lot to enact change without waiting for the slow mechanisms of law to be enacted. However, I think it is important, particularly when we're facing new technologies, to aim towards changing the laws. Otherwise, people will try to get away with not conforming to the norms. And we've seen, you know, Donald Trump who is someone who's fractured or not followed norms and just come along and say, I don't agree with that. This is my style. And it wasn't written down. So do you think on the level of laws or transforming norms of what is acceptable within the U.S. that they might be following by the example of how Europe has treated these new technologies and in terms of big data, in terms of not allowing disinformation on certain platforms that they see escalating conflicts, for instance, between Hamas and Israel? Do you see U.S. following that? Well, the U.S. is very tricky in that way. I do think you're seeing a lot more what goes on in Europe, what goes on in many different countries, some of the things that are going on in Scandinavia. And I've been very fortunate actually working with some colleagues and regulators over there thinking about these things. Listeners, it should be noted that this interview was conducted before President Biden unveiled a new executive order on AI, the U.S. government's first action of its kind requiring new safety assessments, equity and civil rights guidance, and research on AI's impact on the labor market. And G7 nations also established a voluntary AI code of conduct. I have for many years in working in artificial intelligence back almost 10 years ago, thinking about autonomous systems. It's, it's a slow evolutionary process because I think a couple of things happen when it comes to laws and regulations. And I'm, again, I'm not a cultural historian, but I work with historians and they're really interested in looking at how things move through those concentric circles and how they become laws and how they become things like that. And what a lot of them will tell you is that, especially with a new technology or a new business that's driven by technology, unfortunately, what oftentimes has to happen, it is has to cause harm first, is that the way that a lot of laws work is that something needs to happen first. And unfortunately, a law needs to be broken or somebody needs to stand up and say, hey, this amount of disinformation and misinformation is really bad. You can have people whose, whose lives get affected by it, which we've seen what can happen with things like that. So then it starts to define it. That's one of the things that I try to do as a futurist and also try to do when it comes to future threats is to define them as early as we can. And so we did. So back in 2016, 2017, in my threat casting lab at Arizona State University, we were writing about disinformation and misinformation and got very specific about what it could do and how you could use AI, an AI ML tool that could look at a large data set and come up with custom content for somebody. Also now known as ChatGPT, right? And it wasn't that we were trying to predict it. We were just trying to define what that landscape looked like. We tell people, if you want to defend it or you want to control it, you have to define it. I agree with you that some of these things take a while, but also in seeing different technologies come out, like the personal computer, like the internet, like AI, you're watching people first defining it, understanding its impact, because if you want to regulate it or put laws, you have to actually define it as well. Getting back to your original question about the United States, I think this year, 2023, has been a very big shift here in people talking about it. Myself writing about it starting in 2016, 2017, very specific around the negative effects that AI and all and disinformation, these things would have on us, that now beginning to see it on the evening news, seeing it there in our Congress and in our government, they're actually now having hearings on it and they're talking about it. But then also, They've done it multiple times, to your point. So now they're starting to be able to hold people to account. I'm the CEO of DeepMind just put out a new book talking about power when it talks, comes to AI and these technologies, that it is a conversation about power and who is using it and how they're using it, which I think is really, really important to understand because that's how 
we begin to make real change. Again, we don't talk about it like a piece of science fiction. We don't talk about it around something that these technologies run off on their own and do it. No, they were created by people. Even when we create them with a level of autonomy, they were still created. They still have programmed into them a way of doing it. They're not human. They don't have human level intelligence. Even though they can do things faster than us, to your point, so can a calculator, right? And a calculator is not human. We have to understand that. And one of my next books that I'm writing right now is for eight-year-olds. What does an eight-year-old need to know about artificial intelligence? I love this idea because I go to schools all the time and I talk to young women and men about these types of things. Like, what should you know? Don't be frightened of it. And then ultimately saying to them, well, let's get down to base principles. What is AI? It's software. That's all it is. It's software written by human beings. If you start there and you don't jump to it taking over the world, there's really specific steps. If you can think about it in that way to go, okay, who's writing the software? And if you want it to be autonomous, what are you having it do? You're not having it be human. We're not there yet. We're not going to be there arguably for a while. So then what is it doing? I think as you start to have those conversations, it starts to feel a little bit more accomplishable. Can you regulate it? That's interesting what you said about law. I think that it's actually not responsible that we can only create laws once we see that something has done harm. We've actually seen the harm that's been created by those dangerous precedents with bioweapons and these new toxins that can be generated by AI. We've seen less sophisticated, fast-moving science that the EPA just allowed companies to create all these chemicals in the 1950s and 60s, and we hadn't seen that harm had been done. And yet it takes decades to get those chemicals declared illegal. It's harming children, it's harming adults. It's impeding brain development. I feel it's very, very irresponsible. And speaking about water, 45% of Americans' tap water is estimated to have one or more types of chemicals known to be contaminated with polyfluorinated alkyl substances or exposure to PFAs, the health effects, decreased fertility, increased risks of prostate, kidney, or testicular cancers, reduced ability of the body's immune system to fight infections, and increased cholesterol levels or the risk of obesity. And many products used by consumers and industry have been manufactured with or from PFAs. I interviewed the lawyer Rob Bilot, and he was involved in the $4 billion settlement agreement with the chemical company DuPont in 1989. And he told me recently that they're still producing some kind of modified forms of PFAs under new names. Like as a futurist, like we should have futurists in residence, we should have philosophers, humanities scholars in residence to perhaps be a part of this governance when these technologies are being made. Because when we get them, we're consumers, they're being used by us, but against us, and we're guinea pigs, therefore. I really feel, I'm sure you agree, that we can't wait until it's already created to see the harm that it's done, because then it's too late. So this so this is what happens when so this is what happens when legislation isn't put in place and we rely on norms and good behavior. I definitely agree with you. Let's get really specific about that. We need to understand the consequences of anything that is created. Like you said, it could be a chemical, it could be a technology, but it has to be created first. You have to say what will it do? And that could be in a lab or could be in a university, arguably very early on, you need to understand it. There's always going to be unintended consequences as well. That does happen. 
But the thing about unintended consequences is we know they're going to happen. Like we know that there's too much history for that. And you're right. We need to start to recognize them very early on and create mechanisms to go after them. Certainly for myself in working with companies and even talking about when it comes to larger things around regulatory and government, we start to investigate what could go not only right, which we spend a lot of time talking about, but what could go wrong and what could those possible negative effects be and hold people to account very early on. I agree with you as well to get really specific around how we do it. And we can do it. I think that's something that's very important. We have the ability, even in theory, as we're saying, what is this technology or what is this thing that we are going to create to then say, okay, let's think about all the things that could go right and could go wrong. And that's what I spend a lot of my time trying to teach people and teach organizations to go and do. I was just thinking about the medical aspects. We can see that there are great you know, potential for medicines and creating cures, but we don't introduce these medicines into the general population until we know that they're safe. So I feel like the onus should be the other way around. Make sure it's safe before it's disseminated. Even if it has a potential that has to be very tightly governed, we can't have a law against it until we know that it's created harm. That does seem too late. I heard about this company that was using AI to generate medicines. So Spies Laboratory out of Switzerland got in touch with them to ask them to give a presentation on the potential misuse of AI. So they set themselves a task. Instead of asking their AI model to generate drug-like molecules that could cure diseases that were going unnoticed, they said, let's see if we can generate the most toxic molecules possible. They just asked the question, and overnight, the AI being run on a single computer came up with 40,000 toxins, potentially some of the most toxic chemicals known to humankind, you know, tens of thousands of new chemical weapons. This is very dangerous. I mean, I understand the potential for saving lives on the one hand, but I think we just have to think with a little bit of foresight and governance. I really feel like the humanities should be called into these conversations because the technologist will get very excited and just want to see what can happen. Yeah. And I think one of the things in that is in the future casting and threat casting method that I teach and that I've written about, it is a fiercely interdisciplinary to say that you have to have a very broad perspective, starting with social science, then understanding the technology, what's possible, then understanding the cultural history, understanding history, understanding the economics as well as the geopolitics of it. The, the trends, the sort of cultural trends or the regulatory trends and having those conversations and actually finding people who have dissenting opinions, people who are always interrogating who's not at the table, who needs to be involved, who should be here. It's a way of thinking of bringing together, like you said, I completely agree. A lot of the technology teams that I'm helping people to build have ethicists on them, have social scientists on them, that it's not just computer scientists building these things, that these interdisciplinary approaches become really important. They also, on a positive side, help you build better products that are, impact people. But on the negative side, as you say, it allows us to then start saying what could go wrong what are those things and to identify it as early as possible? I'm an optimist, but I am concerned about the risks of autonomous weaponry and not a lot of transparency anyway in the military. If something went wrong, I wouldn't expect there to be a great deal of transparency. And so what are your thoughts on that and how should we mitigate those possible risks? I'm really fortunate that I do get to work with the military quite a bit. And there's, and it's not classified. You can actually go read most of the work that I've done with them. I also even go to the point of, I actually write comic books for the military as well, to visualize what these futures might look like and what these level of autonomy might look like. We actually did a graphic novella called Hero, and it was about a, a little autonomous 
it's a bug actually, and it's an actual bug. So we're using a, a micro robotics and micro artificial intelligence. It's a surveillance bug. We created it as a way that we're looking for a terror plot in the story, but we created it to say, okay, this is really interesting about what it could do, but also from a human rights and a privacy standpoint, there's a lot of peril here. And I've really found in the work that I've been doing that there is a very robust conversation around autonomy, especially when it comes to weapon systems of understanding. Again, we have conversations and they're very public conversations around what do we want and having whatever the values of our society and of our allies, that's very important. We've seen that play out with chemical weapons. We've seen that play out with nuclear weapons. We do start to have those conversations and then create bodies that try to govern it and try to actually say, no, we as a collective think this thing. So for me, I feel very fortunate because I see a lot of those conversations happening. You can find them. They actually write quite a lot about them, but then also understanding that the reality is in some instances, and we have this already with um, anti-missile systems, that there will be times when you actually will need a machine to work very quickly to do it because a human being can't go fast enough. Like I said, with a lot of anti-missile systems, that's what they're done. That's what, how people have used them. But it's a very specific sort of application to it. But when it comes to autonomous lethal systems, it is something that is very, very highly debated. And it's something that we're going into and talking about a way to understand how does it align with our culture and our norms and what we believe in. So I, for one, am not so dim. I don't, I'm not, don't have such a dark vision of what that might be, understanding that the, the people that I work with really do understand the importance of having these conversations. Yes, I've had the frustration of being aware of these enormous black budgets and understanding that on the one hand, the military really understands ecological crises, the threat of climate change. They have the best technologies. They have the organizational capacity. They have the working budgets. And we have so many concerned students experiencing eco-anxiety. Why couldn't some of that enormous budget and organizational capacity be steered towards ground forces of some kind working in renewable energy. I'd love to see that. I just hear about all this destruction. And sometimes I hear about some new military technology and it costs so much. And I'm thinking, God, can you imagine how many solar panels could be built with that? Wind farms and cleaning the air. That's my dream. And I've mentioned this to other people who worked in the military. And I know that the military is aware of the risks more than others of climate change and thinking tactically about it. But I would like to see that actually like a Peace Corps, you know, bringing troops home and working on the ground to enact that. The Great Transition. I think that would be a fascinating project to future cast that. I mean, because a lot of the things that you have described, although incredibly important, is not the military's job. Now, we could make it their job, possibly, or like you said, we could make a Peace Corps or we could make an environmental corps, which would be fascinating. I do think, though, I, I can tell you in some of the work that I'm doing, especially like around artificial intelligence, the private sector has far more, far more budget than any military. I guarantee you that because the private sector can put so much more money into these because they're publicly traded companies and they're the largest companies in the world. So I don't outsize that because it's actually a problem. It's a problem when it comes to artificial intelligence, things like that. Actually, governments don't have a lot of money when it comes to developing these technologies and, and private companies really, really do. And one of the things which we've written about in a couple of the reports that have come out is they do have an understanding of the importance of climate change and what it's doing for stability. When you talk about military or government, and mainly the military, it's mainly about national and global security and that climate change is bad for national and global security. 
And we've actually come up with many examples of threats where they start with a climate disaster. That climate disaster then turns into something else, which we've all seen with refugees. We've all seen with sort of attacks and things like that. But understanding, we've been modeling that. We actually have lots of examples in the reports that we've written where it's very much at the forefront of kind of understanding that. And they do have an understanding of it. But something I have found in the last year and a half, the broader conversation around climate has really changed. And this is mostly in North America, because it's where I spent most of my time over the last year, where before we would talk about climate change and we'd say, well, because it's the right thing to do, we need to do it for humanity, we need to do it for the future. And you begin to see some very large companies and especially some infrastructure companies, like people who build railroads and ports and things like that, starting to have an understanding around climate and climate change as it not only being bad for security, but it's bad for business. I want to pause on that for a moment because I don't think that should be the reason why. But for many businesses, they're beginning to see it bad for business. What that means is that's where some of change can happen. Because if it's bad for business, wait a minute, that's our job is to make money. That's what businesses do, right? Corporations maximize shareholder profit quarter over quarter. If all of a sudden climate change is not allowing you to do that, then you start to start taking some measures. For me, this is just an observation. My job is to go out and talk to people about the future and what's possible and probable and what might happen. But the conversations that people are starting to have around sort of those effects are really fundamentally different. They're becoming a little bit more tactical. I think a great example, as I was working with the trade association up in Western Canada, and they were talking about climate and preparing it and resiliency and how do we make the changes and actually start to go to carbon neutral. Because one of the reasons they said last year that Western Canada, because of climate change, rains and mudslides, Western Canada had no rail service for five days. They lost billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Not only was it very bad, they lost billions of dollars. That made people really start thinking about this in a really different way. And so it's been a fascinating thing for me to see this conversation fundamentally change has been really fascinating over the last year. Ever since I was little, I've been an anxious person, constantly worried about what could and couldn't happen, just intimidated by the future. Even thoughts about how the world would change over time would worry me. Just imagining a horribly automated world with all sorts of robots and technology. After seeing and being a part of our producer Mia Funk's interview with Brian David Johnson, I realized just how much more there is to the future. People often associate the future with technological advancements and scientific discoveries. And while these things may play a crucial role in the times to come, they're only a fraction of what will make up the world of tomorrow. Our advancements in the arts, humanities, and social attitudes build a part of our future just as much as any technology. The difference in social justice now compared to 30 years in the future is as impactful and significant as any invention, if not more, as well as cultural movements and politics. And while it can be easy and sometimes reasonable to become concerned about these things, Brian himself isn't too worried. After years in his career of assessing and accurately planning for possible futures, Brian has found it inspirational to see the passion people have for solving this potential future issues. It's not about fearing what could happen, but rather it's the peace of mind knowing that we can do something to make sure it doesn't. Brian shared that some of the same strategies he's found useful for shaping the future of government institutions, corporate startups, are oftentimes the very same ones we can use in our own personal lives. He believes that the future, especially one's own, is in humanity's hands. It isn't rooted in the random and unpredictable. How humanity responds to technological changes like AI or political shifts, really anything unknown, 
is what shapes the world ahead. We can create the future we want. All we need is an optimistic lens. Now back to the interview. Yeah, that's the unfortunate side of extractive capitalism. You can't expect to act in certain ways, just damaging our planet without it having a result. But I did think that was interesting that you felt that businesses had more resources. I think even working in tandem, although that can be dangerous with military, but I have noticed on the military side, I hear about these black budgets. I don't even know exactly what it is, but the fact is the military historically can spend what a company would think was waste. It would go out of business, Billions of dollars, say, on fighter jets or things like this without consequences because they are not for profit. Their business, they do have to spend this money. I would love to see it directed in a more positive light because then there would not be that need for security. And I've read some of these reports that I get handed to me that were available and where I see them making forecasts for the future and whether it's due to climate change. But how nice would it be to get ahead of that and not be spending on weaponry and these kind of contingencies, but just the kind of renewable energy that would prevent that. But I feel they could be doing more and they're not stepping up. And I think that should be a part of their future forecasting. And that's why I really do think that being able to do a future casting on what does that look like in reality? So taking what you're saying and let's look 10 years out and to say, if that is the future that we want and being a generative future is really important, how do we get there? What does that look like? And so if you can go and model it and get really specific and say, what does that look like? What are they doing? What does that mean? So what are their measures of success to get really, really specific about it? Because I think what you're talking about, I don't think anybody would disagree with, but to say, well, what are the functional things that would need to happen between now and then to really make it happen? Because I think in that way, as you get down to brass tacks, you can go, okay, you can give me a, a vision for the future that is really quite compelling. And that's really important because, right, visions for the future have mass, they have gravity, people get pulled to them, right? And so to say, okay, then what were the steps that need to be taken? It's a way to sort of engage people in really interesting conversations because they could say, oh, no, that would never happen. To say, okay, well, fine, what would need to happen? And finding that first little step, finding those things that need to happen bit by bit by bit along the way. Again, over the span of 10 years, like you say, so much can happen over that time, especially as you mentioned, between what's what's happening with mis and disinformation. If you look over the span of 10 years, a lot has happened now, but it was very, very slow, very slow, it was very fast. And so I think that could be a really fascinating experiment to take what you're talking about and to, to do that future cast and backcast. Yeah, because I had a chance to interview Todd Miller, who wrote a book about border walls, and it was a Pentagon internal paper. And it said that in the future, they could see climate immigration, climate refugees coming in the millions, and they might have to shoot people at the border. So I'm going to get off that. Do, do you want to bring Melanie in? One of my first questions for you is that obviously in assessing threats to security, just in general to the future for so many years, and obviously some of them have been negative, you accurately predicted those. How has that impacted you, not only personally, but through your work, your writing, your teaching? I think it's actually made me more of an optimist, to be very honest, because having, so I do 10 years out and there's very specific reasons for that, which I won't bore you with. I've been doing this for nearly 30 years. So I have seen it happen a lot of that. And some of it was generative, like things like smart TV. That's what I was brought in by the Intel Corporation because we had a crazy idea that people use the internet to watch television. And then to see it happen is very humbling, right? It's like, wow, that's very powerful. Something that you could just have an idea. And it wasn't just me. It was a global ecosystem of people that made it happen. But it's to see that and then understand it is really humbling. And you do realize the, the power that organizations have, right? But what we've all been talking about. 
that makes me optimistic because I think, hey, we can build the future. Let's all get together and build a future that's awesome. Let's not get together and build a future. That's what makes me an optimist because I've seen it happen. On the threat side, and I've spent really the last 15, 20 years of my work really looking at in seeing those threats, we look at these really dark things. We look at digital weapons of mass destruction. We look at the weaponization of artificial intelligence, very dark things. And I work with my students and the people who are doing it and tell them, we do this work so that we can make it better. We go to these dark places so that we can try to disrupt them and mitigate them. We do them to try to empower people about that. That's my lab's motto is envisioning futures to empower action. I've got to work with NATO and militaries all over the world. And a lot of people are working very hard to try to make the future safer. Not everybody, certainly there's bad actors and all that type of stuff. So I'm not a Pollyanna, but what makes me an optimist is that every year I get to work with more people and we're trying to do it. That makes me optimistic because it means there's a lot of people out there who are passionate about making the future better. It makes sense. I can definitely see like the optimistic side of that for sure. I think people tend to focus on the negative, but the good thing about that is that we can always do something about it. And, and again, I understand that it's scary. So I'm not yeah. by no means am I saying that you shouldn't be scared and that these things aren't awful. They are and they really are. But to your point, if something is just awful and we're all going to die, it's taking away your power as an individual. Mm -hmm. That's also, again, why, why I write books for kids. Now, again, you need to talk about the, these bleak realities, but to your point is to say, here's some things we can do about it. And even mm -hmm. if it's a big existential threat, there's still things that you can do individually about it. And, and trying to get to that point is to be kind to other human beings. You're helping people just map out their own personal life, you know, what they want in their future. So I think it's really interesting that it works in both ways. Yeah. And it was fascinating for me to learn that. Like I, I come from large corporations. I make global connected TV systems and things like that. I'm an engineer. And so the, the journey for that was really interesting because I would go do my work and I'd be the futurist and all that. But then afterwards, I'd be walking with somebody and having a coffee or whatever. And they would ask me, what should I do about my kids? Or how do I prepare my kids for the future? Or, hey, I'm worried about this. What, what do you think I should do? And as I said right before, let's be kind to humans. I take that serious. If somebody asks me that question, even though I would never be so arrogant as to say, here's what you need to do with your children. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. But to be able to come to them and be kind and go, okay, but here's how I think about it. And that's why I wrote the book. But now I get pictures from people. They'll send them to me or they'll post them online. Because in, in the future, you, because I'm a professor, there are workbooks and you were supposed to do work. Mm -hmm. The future is not easy. So writing it down, I've had people take pictures that they've done it as a family and they've decided that they were going to move from the city and they were going to move to the mountains. And they're like, thank you so much, BDJ. We moved to the mountains. And I'm like, really? Okay. And if it's really scary to me, I'm like, okay, is that a good idea? I think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. But you just start to see people have that empowerment and start to make yeah. those, those life changes. And it's just phenomenal. Another thing I wanted to ask you about actually was, how do you think that we are in terms of the rate of progress? Do you think we should have done more by now? Or do you think we're doing too much too fast? One of the dirty little secrets about the future is that it's going to look a lot like today, especially in the span of our lifetimes. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. We have our homes and we have where we live and we have our neighborhoods and we like them. I, I tell people that if you woke up one morning and you were in a sci-fi future and like, do, why do we not have flying cars? Well, they would be a nightmare. That's why. Because <laughs> you met humans? Have you met humans in regular cars? Like, that's crazy. You can start to get into the, the aspirational part of it. Again, I'm a sci-fi author, so the aspirational part is really, really interesting. But again, the engineer and the pragmatism in me kind of has an understanding of why it hasn't happened yet and why these things mm -hmm. come to fruition. And a lot of them are very good reasons why we don't have our skies clogged by flying cars. So speaking of scary thoughts, kind of exciting but scary, what are your thoughts on post-humanity neural wetware and transhumanism and, you know, 
Are you going to wait for the technology to be developed if you are going to get it or? I'm fascinated by that. By the way, no, no easy questions with you folks. So, so again, we've now established a pattern for me. So what I go is, what do I want from this? Neural wetware, interfaces, synthetic biology as well. Like all these sort of things. For me, that's the veil between technology and biology coming down. And you've got this free flow between that. We have ones and zeros to DNA, to our systems and all that type of stuff. And we've been seeing it happening. For me, it started around 2013. There was a, a group of scientists and researchers who took Shakespeare's sonnets, part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, as well as the, a picture of them outside their lab. They turned it into ones and some zeros. They turned those ones and zeros into DNA. They printed that DNA on a printer and they stuck it in an E. coli. And then the E. coli lived and did what it does, lives and eats and poops and replicates. It did that multiple generations. They took the DNA out, re-synthesized it back to ones and zeros with 100% accuracy. This blew my mind. So people were talking like doomsday hard drives, like we can take all of our information and put it into bacteria. That was kind of interesting to me. It showed the ineptitude of our imagination of what we could do with that. When the veil between those things comes down, what are the amazing things that could happen? And we're still trying to figure that out, right? As we move through synthetic biology and CRISPR and these wetware and brain interfaces and all these different things. So for me, I'm asking myself, well, what do we want to do with it? What's the problem that we are trying to solve? And then for me, what the things that I always look toward is who are the most vulnerable populations that would then benefit from this? Because oftentimes that's where it comes from first. Terrible brain injuries, people who have had some of these cognitive problems or those types of things. So I'm always trying to look at what's the problem we're trying to solve with it. And I'm not a philosopher, so the problem that we're trying to solve for me is not death, because I'm an engineer, I'm not good at death, but there's a lot of other things that we're trying to solve for that that's what I always focus on is saying, hopefully, I will not need one because I'm doing quite well. But also that's where I always focus on is how do we find people who do have those needs to make those measurably better. So I can tell that you're not the Ray Kurzweil type futurist. It is a philosophical question. Like, when do you start being you? If you're going to say, I can live forever, which are some of these futurists say, I mean, there is a point that's like reincarnation. If you're no longer the cells that you were and you're just like a downloaded memory, I just think you just start being you. I think this goes back to one of your previous points. I think Ray Kurzweil and a lot of those futurists and those thinkers are very important. Like pushing how we think about the future, thinking about right on the edge of the impossible and maybe even a little bit of the possible, like Michio Kaku is just absolutely amazing. I think really important from an intellectual standpoint, but there's lots of different types obviously called out. But I think you're right. At some point, these sort of aspirational or these darker things, when you think about the technological singularity, the singularity is the thing which you cannot see what is on the other side of. And, you know, Werner Vinge came up with the technological singularity, that idea. Werner's a friend of mine and he's talking about that. It's the thing which you cannot see. So you don't know. You get people thinking about it. And I think this goes back to what you were saying. That's where we need the philosophers. That's where we need the social scientists. That's where we need the ethicists. To, like you said, to describe what a human is is incredibly complex. And to, even to describe our brain, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was in a room full of people. We were having a salon and kind of talking about the future and talking about climate. This was in Arizona. So we're talking about the future of water, which is a really fascinating conversation. Some people brought up AI and can we upload our souls and can we do this and can we replicate it? And there was this gentleman in the back, he was an older gentleman, and he just started, gets a smirk on his face. And I know that smirk. And again, I'm always like this. So I'm like, sir, I see that smirk. You have to tell me what you're smirking about. And he said, well, I've got a really strong opinion about humans and our brains and what we call humans and replicating that. I'm retired now, but I should probably tell you what I do. And I was like, oh, please, sir, please tell me. He said, I'm a brain scientist. I was like, oh. 
And he goes, yeah, I've spent my entire career looking at dementia and looking at the brain misfunctioning and malfunctioning and breaking down. And I said, wow, you know more about this than me. This is great. I can go get some more coffee and you can do this. He goes, no, it's really simple. I've spent my, my entire career understanding the human brain and I know nothing about it. We know nothing about our brains. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I've heard people say that before, right? The brain, you know, we sort of say creativity lives here and then some poor soul gets that part of their brain taken out and then all of a sudden creativity moves over here and all these different things. The brain is really fascinating and I'm not a brain scientist. Luckily, there was one. And he said, if you're going to replicate a human or replicate even our consciousness, how are you going to do it if you don't even understand it? And all of a sudden, that was the engineer. I mean, we're like, oh yeah, if you want to make it, you've got to define it, right? You have to have system requirements that you have. So I started doing my pragmatic thing that we talked about before. And to me, that was a really fascinating way to have somebody who had spent their entire lives trying to make people's lives better with brain science, stepping forward and going, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. He was just very specific, but it was really interesting having somebody who really knew about the human brain talking about artificial intelligence and uploading consciousness and all those types of things. So it was really fascinating to have that pragmatic approach to it because that's how I, I like to look at things. Yeah, indeed. We're uh, biochemical and we don't know the extent to which uh, chemicals or even our digestive system affects our brains. And, and that's the mind-body problem. I, I think we imagine consciousness takes place because it's behind the eyes. We think it's in our brain. But there's a whole system in our bodies. And dancers will tell you, they often think through their arms. Their brain might get the message late. <laughs> you know, So that's just kind of thing floating there. And we see that in the natural world in animals. We might say, oh, sometimes their brains are smaller proportionally, but wow, they really think through their bodies. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's really fascinating theories, of course, like simulation theory and all these things, but I want terrestrial concerns, things that are going to affect us and aren't too out there. I'm really concerned with just like the future of cities is one thing. How do we make on the question of climate change and the environment and how can AI and new technologies help us do these important transitionings, reducing pollution, improving our transport systems, resource management, you mentioned water, waste management, food. What are the future, uh, cities of the future going to look like? For you, ideally, you know, what are some, have you gamed it out? I would love to talk about this. I could bring some friends who actually, a gentleman by the name of Greg Lindsay, who is an urbanist, who actually does a lot of work on the future of cities and is actually in the middle of, we, we're just looking at sort of AI and VR and mixed reality and what it means for cities and how to build cities. We could talk for a whole nother hour just on that. So let's do that. Let's have me back on. Let's do that. As you think about putting these messages in your books for children, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think the most important thing that I would like children to know is that they can build their future, that they have the power and they have the agency to shape their future. And they have the ability and the power when working with others to have an even broader impact. That ultimately, the thing that scares me the most about the future is when people give up that agency and they let other people design their futures for them. For me, I think it's incredibly powerful to actually go to young people and say, you have the ability to do it, but also you need to tell me what you want and empowering them to have a vision for the future. That's why I spend so much time in schools and talking to young people. Because it's those visions that I think are incredibly important. Yeah, we have to really define what we want to get there. Thank you, Brian David Johnson, for your important research into the future of AI, safety, existential risk, neuroscience, philosophy, transhumanism, and helping us understand what we value, where we're going, and consider possible outcomes and what we should do to ensure a positive future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk again soon. 
the creative process. And One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Melanie Munoz with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Melanie Munoz. The podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.